The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't think that there is a passage of Scripture that members of Berean Baptist Church know more than 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in this particular part of it. Um, I think this may be more familiar to you than John 3.16. I've preached from it so many times. There are some passages of Scripture that when I get ready to preach, I, I don't have to do a lot of look, looking things up, do a lot of research on, do a... I'm always thinking about and praying about them, of course, but I preached on this passage of Scripture so much that it's like second nature. And uh, it's, it's very good, of course, and the Apostle Paul here gives us the story of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Supper, how that Jesus did it on the night before he was crucified. Now, our subject this evening is the second of the two ordinances of the church in the Baptist acrostic. The ordinance, uh, this particular one, is represented by the fourth letter. The first of these are B, which stands for biblical authority, and A, for the autonomy of the local church. P is the priesthood of the believer, and T is two ordinances. Now, we're on the first T in Baptist, which stands for two ordinances. Baptists believe that there are two ordinances, and only two, that have been given to the church. The first of those is baptism. And you can't make a Baptist church without baptism. Can't even make our name without baptism. The second ordinance is that of the Lord's Supper. And I, I don't know how it worked out this way, except it is by the Lord's providence that I preach on this tonight and we meet together to observe the supper. And so that's a, that's a, that's a great part to have it work out this way. It's been almost exactly three years since I preached on the supper in this particular regard. Uh, every quarter that we have the Lord's Supper, I try to bring a message that goes along with it. And in some ways, I wish that I was preaching a little bit different sermon this evening for this particular observance, but this is the way that it works out as we're studying the acrostic. And so we're looking at uh, how we observe the Supper in a way that makes us different from other people, from denom denominational churches, many of them, and even makes us different from some other Baptist churches. Uh, those of you that have some of you that have come from other Baptist churches, you know that there is a difference in the way that we do this and some of the things that I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, we're different, but we trust that we're doing what the Lord has told us to do. We're not different just for the sake of being different. We want to look into the Word of God and find out why that we do things that the way we do, way we do them. And we want, to be, we want to be right according to the Scriptures and we want to practice what our Baptist forefathers have historically done. Now, two weeks ago in the message, uh, I, I spoke to you about the different names of the Lord's Supper, how, how it's used differently in scriptures. For instance, the name, the Lord's Supper, that's, of course, the way that we refer to it most often in our church. Uh, it's also known as um, the Lord's Table. Paul used that term. He also used the term communion. Eucharist is another term that's used. And remember, Eucharist means thanks. And so the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that we give thanks for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And then I also told you about how the Supper is known by its worst perversion. 
And the Mass is the very worst of all the perversions of the Supper because that makes it a saving sacrament. And it's even made worse yet because it's taught that when the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, when, it's, when it's changed, as the Roman Catholics do when they say that they meet together to take the Mass, they're, they're saying that the literal body and blood of Christ is present and that means that every time that they celebrate the Mass, they are uh, sacrificing Christ over and over and over again. They do this hundreds and thousands of times across the world as they celebrate the Mass. And then I also showed you how that in John chapter 6, which is the proof text that they would use uh, for their observance of the Mass, that Jesus directly refuted their interpretation in the very same passage that they use as the proof. So we talked about that. Now tonight what I'd like us to do is to look at the supper from a different perspective. And I want to look at Baptist practice and the restrictions that we believe that the Bible puts upon the participants and the place of the ordinance of the supper. And our text here is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we want to start. So if you'll look in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation unto himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now I want you to think a little bit about verses 27 through 29. Because if you want to see exclusions in the Lord's Supper, who may come to the Supper, this is the place that we have to start. Every time that we take the Supper, uh, we have a, a short time of silent prayer so that we can come to the Lord with all of our sins confessed. And I remarked to you before that I think uh, sometimes that, that prayer time might be just a little bit short because some of you may have quite a few sins to confess and I can always tell who you are because you're the ones that are struggling to finish as I say that last amen. But the Lord's Supper does have restrictions on it. It has restrictions about who can partake. And it starts right here in these verses with the one who is unworthy. Now this particularly refers to a church member who would mock the body and the blood of Christ by the way that he lives, by an evil lifestyle. If he takes the supper in that way, he eats unworthily. You can't go on living in sin and come here and partake of this supper. Now, we have to judge ourselves and we must denounce the sin that's in our life and turn from that sin in order that we don't come here and desecrate the very symbols that are represented here, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now that's what I'd like to look at tonight, it's restrictions. And I'm going to use an old outline from three years ago. I didn't warn you that I was going to do this, so I kind of seriously doubt there's any of you that has the old outline in your Bible tonight, so you could actually start preaching this message for me. 
but is an old outline, and I decided to use the old outline because I think it fairly covers everything that I need to cover. And uh, uh, what I have to say is not going to hurt you if you hear it again. I have heard it said that if a sermon is not worth hearing the second time, then it wasn't worth hearing the first time. So I hope that this will be helpful to you tonight. So we're going to look at this again, and I'll refresh you on what was said three years ago. And then maybe I'll, I will add some new material that shows us how we distinguish ourselves from Baptists. And actually, this is the perspective that's different from the other outline. And that is we're looking at it from the perspective of the Baptist acrostic. Last time we're looking at it from the perspective of church history and church doctrine. But tonight it's according to the Baptist acrostic. And then let me add still another comment before we start. That I, I, I keep hammering this over and over again as I, as I preach these sermons on the acrostic. That we are an historic Baptist church. That we haven't changed from what our Baptist forefathers taught. I think that's a critical thing. I think uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to look back at our Baptist heritage, see what our Baptist forefathers taught, to teach the same things that they taught. And I don't want to add anything new to what we believe. You know, new things are good in just about everything but religion. You don't want new things in your religion. So we're not going to look at anything new. We're just going to look at what the Bible has told us to do for century after century. Now let me begin then with this observation, and that is the place of the Lord's Supper. That there is a restriction that is put upon the place of the Lord's Supper. W.J. Burgess, in his book, The Lord's Table, made this very important observation. He said, if all could understand that the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, specifically and exclusively a church ordinance, it would clear up much confusion and do away with much criticism of the Baptist position regarding it. And that is such a true statement. There is much confusion about what the church is, which also leads to confusion about how this ordinance ought to be practiced. Now, the place of the Lord's Supper is the church. It's a church ordinance. That means the church takes the Lord's Supper. It's only the church that can observe the Lord's Supper. Well, the next question that someone might ask, then, what is the church? What do you mean by the church? Well, that is a very important question. A church is a local assembly of baptized believers that is meets that meets in a particular place that is covenanted together to carry out the Lord's commission to preach the gospel of Christ, to make disciples, to baptize them, and teach them to observe the Lord's commandments. And of course, part of the Lord's commandments are what we doing are doing here tonight. We are told to take the Lord's Supper to remember the Lord's death until he comes. Now the church is not the church until the membership is physically assembled. The meaning of the Greek term, ecclesia, demands that. The word means to assemble. The church must assemble. C.I. Schofield was one who fostered the unbiblical opinion that the simplest form of a church is where two or three are gathered. I don't think that most of you would like it if two or three of us got together and decided that we were going to sell the church building. I don't think that you would like it if two or three of us got together and said, we're going to change the Constitution and the bylaws of the Berean Baptist Church. Some of you wouldn't like it if two or three of you got together and said, we're going to fire the pastor. And I know which two or three would probably do that, but you can't do that because that is not a church assembly. 
Well, it doesn't mean that every person who is a member of the church has to be present before we can partake of the Lord's Supper. But it does mean that we have the ability to set the parameters for the number of people that should be there that represent that is representative of the church body, and then we are, in fact, the church assembled. It becomes a church meeting. And so when we come together to meet together, that is the church that is meeting. In this particular time, we're meeting here in this building. But if we should decide to meet in another place, if we wanted to go out in the parking lot and have a meeting there, that would be all right. If we decided to go down to the city park and said, this is where we're going to hold the meeting tonight, that would be all right. As long as there's mutual consent among the membership of the church that this is the place where we're going to meet, that's okay. And so all the church would come together, they would assemble together. The building is not the particular place where we have to be. We just have to be where the membership of the church is assembled for us to observe the ordinance. Now, in the last message, you may remember that we discussed how Roman Catholics, uh, what do they do with the leftover bread and body, leftover bread and elements of the Lord's Supper? What do you do with that? Because they don't believe that they can change it back. And so what they do is to save it, and they preserve it, and take it to those who are not able to come. They take it to the sick, they take it to hospitals, those that are shut in, and so forth. And uh, they allow them to partake of their Mass, or as we would call it, the Lord's Supper. But Baptists won't do that. Not, not a Baptist who's following the Scripture, he won't do that. We do not take the elements of the Supper away from the church meeting. We don't take the elements to people that can't come. We don't take it to people that are at home and couldn't get here and allow them to take the supper. And the reason that we don't is that the communion of the church is represented here, the assembly of the church. To take that and to take the supper outside of the assembly is to destroy the closeness of that communion that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, before uh, Jerry Falwell died, he got involved with the old PTL club and he tried to save that dreadful mess. Uh, it was on its way down because of the Jim Baker scandal. And so Jerry Falwell took it over. And one of the things that Falwell was always doing was cooking up different schemes in order to raise money to keep his empire alive. I mean, he was always struggling to raise money. So one of the things that he did was that he advertised that if you would donate a certain amount of money, that he would send you a little wooden box, and in it would be two communion cups and... Uh, some bread, so that you could sit in the, in the simplicity and the luxury of your living room, and you could watch their television service, and you could take the Lord's Supper with his church. I would have to say, along with the Apostle Paul here in verse number 20, this is not to take the Lord's Supper. Now notice in the verse it says, when ye come together into one place, there was no thought on Paul's mind that there might be some of the membership at the church at home and they were also taking the Lord's Supper. Now I want you to notice an important point. that If you read the account of the suppers in the Gospels, Jesus sat down with all of his apostles. All of them were there but one. And there's a reason for that. If you carefully put all of the accounts together, you'll find that Judas had gone out before the supper was instituted. And so Jesus wait, waited for him to leave before he sat down with that intimacy with his apostles and then had them share in his body and his blood. Now, in the Corinthian text, you can see that Paul is talking about an assembled church, which, of course, 
When I say that, that's a redundancy because by definition, a church is a visible assembly. So this is one of the things that we can mark down that, that uh, is a restriction. The gathering of the church is the exclusive place for the observance of the supper. It's restricted to the assembly. It can't be taken in any other place but in the church setting. So if you get sick and you can't be at church, then you can't take the supper. But there's a remedy for that, in case you didn't know. What you could do is you could invite all of the church to come over to your house. And then uh, we could decide that we're going to have a church meeting there. And then we could call that a worship meeting. And then we would all get together. We would be at your house. And then we could have the Lord's Supper. And there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. You know, the early church met in houses, didn't they? Uh, in fact, if you'll turn to Acts 2, verse number 46 for just a moment, uh, let me show you this. The early church didn't have buildings to meet in, so sometimes they would meet in the open air. Sometimes they gathered in the outer court of the temple or at the synagogues. The Jews didn't like for them to be there, but they would do it. Um, and look, if you look at verse number 46, it says, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They went from house to house breaking bread. Now, there is some disagreement about that passage, whether that speaking of the Lord's Supper, is that talking about a common meal? But, of course, we would look at that and say, well, what's so special about eating your common meal from house to house? That's where you normally eat. But the thing that sort of sets it apart and helps us to understand that it is talking about the Lord's Supper is that there's a definite article in the Greek before bread so that it says they were breaking the bread, which indicates that it was the unleavened bread that was used for the supper. One of the many interesting things that we did, Gary and I, when we were in Israel, was to go and visit the excavation of Peter's house in Capernaum and there's a church building that's built on pillars above that excavation. And one of the unusual things about that house is just the size of it. It's much, much larger than all the other houses. And that's because it was a place that was used for the church to meet. And so they, as the church grew, they just kept expanding and expanding that house in order for them to meet in. So early churches met in houses. And um, my point is that we could observe the supper that way if we wanted to. We could go to your house. You could come to my house or however it is. And, and we could get all the church members together. And we could say, this is a meeting and here we're going to have the Lord's Supper. So there isn't anything particular about this building that makes it the place. It's a nice place to come. Nice cool place to come. Nice seats to sit on and so forth. Very accommodating to us. But it's not this building that makes the church. It's the people. The people who are assembled together, and those are the only ones that can take the supper. And so to recap that point, the place of the supper is the church. The church is not the building. The church is the people of God who are assembled for worship and for the observance of the ordinances. Now next we want to talk about the participants in the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to be able to finish this tonight, so we're just going to go... As far as we can, then we're going to observe the supper. Then next time, which will actually be a couple of weeks, we'll come back to talk about this a little bit more. So first is the exclusivity of the place for taking the supper. And now we come and we want to look at the people. There are restrictions that are put upon the people. Who are those that are allowed to sit at the Lord's table? Well, 
this should be obvious to us, that if the place uh, of the church, the church is the place for the Lord's Supper, the assembly of God's people that are covenanted together for the gospel, then that would mean that the place is also synonymous with the people. That the people who take the supper are those who are members of the church. Now, of course, our church services are open to everyone. We welcome guests that come. We're thankful for each guest who comes to visit with us. We encourage you to invite friends and family to come to church with you. If someone comes in from the neighborhood, we're glad to have them. Someone visiting from out of town, as we often do, we love to have those visitors. So guests are encouraged. But we have to be very clear about this, that the assembly of the church, our meeting for worship, was never intended to be about guests that would be here. Now, we don't want to ignore guests. We certainly don't. We want guests to feel welcome. But church meetings have never been primarily about the fellowship that we have with the guests who might come. Oh, the church is a body that's covenanted together. That is central. It's never been about outsiders who would be here. Visitors, as I said, are welcome, but church services are not to be designed for that purpose. Oh, the modern church has actually lost its focus in that regard, and that's why churches are, are more concerned today about marketing strategies than they are about the Word of God. The purpose of a church service is not the evangelization of the lost. Now, the model for many Baptist churches is to always preach a simple salvation message on Sunday mornings in order to get the visitors saved. And so for 52 weeks out of the year, the preacher stands in the pulpit and preaches a salvation message. Now, we do need to hear about salvation. Even saved people need to hear about that from time to time. We need to be refreshed about it and thank the Lord for the salvation that we have. But the time of the church service is more to be spent developing saved church members into a deeper understanding of God's Word. And if the preacher focuses on the lost, makes that the focus every Sunday, then people in the church that are saved, church members, are going to hear elementary things every time that they come on a Sunday morning. They're going to hear very basic things when they come to church. And so what we want to do is to spend our time developing church members into a better understanding. That's what the church service is about. So we're more concerned, you know, marketing strategies are concerned about the growth of the church. Well, they're concerned about numbers. We're not, we're not concerned about numbers. We're concerned about the growth of God's people. We're, we're concerned about the spirituality of God's people so that we have a better understanding of our relationship with God. And when we have a better understanding of that, then we have better ability to deal with people that we come in contact with every day who might be lost. Now, most of the messages then in these types of church meetings should not be repetitions of elementary doctrines of the faith. And I think that many of you can testify that uh, your desire, your desire for the Word of God has increased as you hear more of the deeper doctrines of the Word. You, when, you, when you came to the realization that Sunday mornings are not to be about a salvation message. And you realize that there is actually more than just the simple gospel that's in the Bible. Then you learn that you can really grow when you start to be fed. And uh, those who don't get more than the salvation message don't grow. Now the, the, the odd thing here is I'm not 
telling you all of this to make me look like some fantastic preacher who's hit on some great formula for growing the people of God. You and I both know there isn't anything special about me. There, there's my, my preaching and messages are barely passable most of the time. But the sad thing is that people that are used to hearing practically nothing from the pulpit but a salvation message, and then, as I was talking to Matt earlier today, a message, a series on the family, that'll be next. A series on finances, that'll be in there. A series about how you should dress, those things will be in there. And the people walk away from those kinds of services and they think, wow, we are super indoctrinated, aren't we? We know so much about the Word of God. They think that they're really growing when in fact they've never had any other type of preaching to compare it to. They, they don't know what it means to grow in the Word of God. A few years ago I was uh, uh, at a church service. I'd been asked to preach in a church and after I was finished there were some of the members of the church that came up to me and said, you know, we never heard any preaching like that. We, we wish that our pastor would get into some more of these doctrines that are in the Bible. Now the thing about that, I, I'm no great preacher. All that I'm trying to do for you is to do what our Baptist forefathers did. And when they got together and preached the Word of God, they preached the whole counsel of the Word of God, cover to cover. They covered it all. And preached every doctrine that's in the book. Our Baptist forefathers did that. And when you do that, it opens up subjects that people have never heard before. But the problem is most pastors have the wrong focus. They design the services for the lost people instead of saved people. And uh, when you do that, you're going to have a problem with the growth of the church. So when you come here, you really ought to expect this. You ought to expect to hear sermons that will increase your understanding of God's Word and the God who gave it. Now you might think, well, you're talking about those things, you've just gone way off topic uh, about the Lord's Supper. So let me just rein it back in and bring it back to the Supper. The point is that as Paul taught on the Supper, he would never think about observing the Supper with mixed company. The church was who he expected to be there in the assembly of the people as he preached on these subjects. He expected members of the church would be meeting together, and there wouldn't be a mixture of lost people that would be in the church, and the meetings were not designed for fellowship with the lost. The fellowship is with the body. The fellowship is the communion of Christ. That makes no sense in a mixed assembly. Now, I know that many churches will have communion on Sunday morning, and the reasoning for that is because the most people are going to be there. Uh, we, we get most of the people in on Sunday morning, so we have it then. Then the communion becomes another piece of the marketing strategy. People want to go to church on Sunday morning because that's when the communion is observed. So they come on Sunday morning, and so it just becomes another marketing strategy. Well, in our services, we will have a mixture of people. The majority are members, but we do have guests. Some are from denominational churches. Some are from other Baptist churches. And I know that I have to be very delicate when I talk about these things because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. And unfortunately, for any visitors who might be here tonight, uh, you, you may not understand all of this until, unless you were able to hear the complete series uh, on the Lord's Supper. Uh, so until I've completed that, you may not get all of this. But there isn't any prejudice here against other Christians. That, that's not the intent at all. Certainly not a prejudice against Christians that visit us. Uh, this is about the symbolism of the Supper and how that Christians should partake of the Lord's Supper with the church that they are a member of because they are a part of that body. 
And so I shouldn't expect that when I go to visit another church and they're having the Lord's Supper that I would take the Lord's Supper with them. Uh, I, I shouldn't take it with them because that, that's the body of Christ. They represent the body of Christ in their locality. So I'm going to take the Lord's Supper with the body that I'm a member of and that preserves the communion, the close communion, the intimacy that we have with the body of Christ. So we have to ask these kinds of questions. Who is permitted to come to the supper of a particular church? And then what about other churches that uh, should we allow members, Christians of other churches to take the supper with us? Should we allow those that are saved but yet are unbaptized to take the supper? Who can sit at the Lord's table when the church meets? Well, we're going to take a look at this from the perspective of what the supper is for and what it represents and that'll help us with the exclusions. Now looking back again, or if you were rather not again, but going back to chapter 10, if you would turn there in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians verses 16 and 17. Paul writes here, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now the first restriction about who can come to the supper concerns those that are not saved. The supper is a communion with the body and blood of Christ. It's not about people getting together and having fellowship with one another. There's a, there's a part of this that has to do with that, but that's not the primary part. Communion with Christ is the primary part. And observing the ordinance can only be done with those who have part with Christ. To take of the symbols of the body and blood of Christ without knowing Christ would be the ultimate blasphemy. That makes, an, uh, makes a mockery out of the ordinance. Now let me just show you how bizarre this is. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we're going to read this and see if you don't think that Paul would blow a head gasket to think that it's permissible for an unbeliever to take the supper. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. He says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I like to be nice when I preach. This is really scathing language. Really scathing language. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now that has implications for many things for marriage, for business, friendships, and such. And surely you have to see that it would have to do with some of the most intimate unions that we have, or the most intimate union, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Church members are linked together in a very special relationship, sharing our life in Christ and from Christ. An unbeliever cannot be in that mix. Now look what it says righteousness cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. Now, one of the first things that people will say to you when you start talking about excluding them from the supper 
As they say, oh, well, you think that you're better than me. They say, you think you're holier than I am. And then they look at our lives, and if they know us, they say, no way. There's no way that you're holier than I am. And unfortunately, sometimes it appears, outwardly at least, they have a valid point. Because our lives are not lived so that we present a picture of Jesus Christ. So you try to say, well, I'm excluding you on the basis of they think I, you're, I, you're holier than I am. That just doesn't make sense. Because they can see there's something wrong with you. Well, of course, the truth is they don't understand this, that we have received our righteousness from Christ. That is true righteousness. And that true righteousness of the heart is not something that you can see. You can see the effects of it, but you can't see into a person's heart to know that whether they have the righteousness of Christ. And out, a person can't see from the outside that you have a new heart. And because of that, we're warned in Scripture to guard our actions so that the righteousness of God does appear outwardly. So we actually do appear to be the people of God. We have the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything that we do. You know that. I know that. We have it because God gave it to us. He's the one that makes the distinctions in us. And so we are made the righteousness of God in Him. And that's what the Scripture means by having communion with the body and the blood of Christ. That's how we're made partakers. Now, on the other hand, the Scripture is telling us here that unbelievers are unrighteous. We've been made life and light in Christ, but they're still in darkness and death. And you think about how distinctively polar those two things are. You can't mix light and darkness. And you can't mix life and death. These are things that don't go together. Now, Paul shows us here that thinking that these things could go together is simply unconscionable. It's, it's just totally out of his mind that you would ever think that a lost person could partake of the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, although as we look at chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, the subject here is not the Lord's Supper, yet we should be able to be people of discernment. And we ought to see how where we can apply things that need to be applied. So we make an application of it here in the Supper. Now, notice then how Paul ramps up his argument in verse number 15. He says, how can Christ agree with Belial? Belial is an interesting word. It means the lowest, worthless type of person possible. It means a wicked, good for nothing. And by the way, that's the way God sees all of us without Jesus Christ. We're wicked. We're just good for nothing. But he saved us. Belial is also a substitute for Satan. It's like Paul saying, how can the God of heaven have anything to do with the God of this world, the one who, who, who just rebelled and disgraced his creation? Now you extrapolate that and take it into the Lord's Supper. Could you imagine that Christ would do this, that he would invite Satan to come to his table, and there they would sit down and they would fellowship over his body and his blood? Well, you know that doesn't make any sense. Now here's another interesting meaning of this word Belial. Listen very carefully to this. That in church history, some believe that this word is translated from the same word that means Allah. Be sure you don't tell Rick Warren that. Uh, interfaith meetings are invitations for Satan to sit down with God. Now here's the point. You can't mix these things. You can't bring unbelievers to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't sit with blood-bought believers at the table. So what's the difference? Look at verse number 16. 
And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So bringing an unbeliever to the communion is like building a statue of Baal in the church. It's like setting up a a place for Dagon or Molech or Ashtoreth to come and sit at the Lord's table. Well, God is in his people. God has communion with his people, not with devils, not with idols, not with false gods. There's not going to be any fellowship between God and the lost. So this is a passage that actually is about believers. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6 is about believers, not lost people. It's about believers who wanted to go back to the, to the world to live in their old lifestyles. Paul reminds these Corinthians of what they've been saved from, that they had come out of some of the worst perversions that the world has known. I mean, they were pornographic, they were sodomites, they were pedophiles, they were adulterers, and yet God saved them. And so Paul is just saying, how can you go back to that? How would you want to sit down with that? How can you have anything to do with that? And now we're saying, as we take it into the fellowship of the Lord's Supper, we would be saying, God forbid that you would bring into the church these things and sit down at the Lord's table with that and eat supper with them. Now, it's not about us being better than them. That's not the issue here. It's not about us being better than them. It's about the Holy God being better than them. It's about the Holy God who saves people and makes them righteous and makes them holy. Supper's very, very serious business. Now, return to the text in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, if we invite the lost to the Lord's table then we would be inviting damnation upon them. Now, here Paul is talking about lost people, about believers. I mean, he would never countenance in, in the discussion that he has here that an unbeliever would be at the table. So he's talking about saved people. And he says, it's possible for you to desecrate the Lord's Supper. You can eat it unworthily by an evil lifestyle, living that way. And so if he says that to a person is, who is a believer that you can invite damnation upon yourself, how much more would he be saying a lost person at the table invites terrible damnation upon himself? So no, we don't want to be a church that invites the lost to just partake of the supper with us. Now we need to see this in another way. I mean, this goes all the time. It goes on all the time in churches. What about the church that does this, who invites an unbeliever to the Lord's table? What would the Lord say to a church like that, that would bring lost people to sit in at the table and so desecrate the supper. What about the church that says, well, it's okay with us if you haven't trusted Christ. Just come on in, sit down with us, you're welcome, we'll serve you just like everyone else. And that's done all the time. The supper is regularly served without any warning at all. There, there's no discrimination in those who come to the supper. Nobody makes a, a deal about it at all. And there aren't any bad consequences that are claimed for anybody who takes the supper under any conditions. It's just put out there. Let everybody take of it if they want. I tend to think that the Lord wouldn't be happy with that at all. I think he would very well put it in a church like that in with some of those seven churches of Asia. 
Now, the Lord's table, table, uh, table rather, is to be guarded. We, we are to protect it for the good of the church. We protect it for the honor of Christ. This is what we call good doctrinal discernment. That's what our study is about. Wisdom, using discernment in the things of God. And so what we have here then is a correct application of the Scripture and one of the most serious of all responsibilities, remembering the death of Jesus Christ until He comes. Now I need to stop there because we need to observe the supper. There are other points that need to be made about the practice. There's uh, another important exclusion that I want to talk about. Now, most Baptists would agree with us on this one. Well, we're not going to find too many people that would say, at least Baptist people would say, well, you, you, you ought not to invite lost people to the supper. But the next one that I want to talk to you about, there's a lot of controversy over. Many, many Baptists won't go with us on this particular one. So the next one is more difficult for us to deal with, and this is a place where historical Baptists will disagree with others. We don't care if we disagree with them. We care with about, do we disagree with Christ? That's the most important thing. Whatever he says to do, whatever Scripture says to do, that's what we want to do. Now, let's prepare ourselves for the supper. We're going to have a word of prayer as Brother Dalton and the musicians come and then uh, to do the singing of the communion hymn, and then also deacons will uh, be ready to come as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we enter into the celebration of the supper. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for uh, the great blessing that it is to sit at the Lord's table. Who could imagine that people such as us could ever be invited to come to this place? We're so undeserving. Lost, we were lost in our sins. We had no right to sit at your table. But we know, Lord, that the only reason that we can be here is because we have been made worthy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that great sacrifice that was made for our sins. And we pray, Lord, that every person here, even at this very moment, is thinking about how can I serve you better? How can I be a better example? How can I show others that I have a true, clean heart, one that has the righteousness of Christ? And may we truly be concerned about how we live our lives every single day. And most of all, Lord, we do want to honor your body and your blood that was given for us and remember your death until you come again. Bless us as we begin the celebration of the supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.